Chapter 21 of Clinical Medicine for Nurses by Paul H. Ringer, A.B., M.D. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter 21 Typhoid Fever Typhoid fever is essentially a general infection with the typhoid bacillus, manifesting itself by a combined fever, a skin eruption, and intestinal ulceration of greater or less severity. The fever runs an average course of from three to four weeks and terminates by lysis, i.e. gradual descent. Typhoid fever presents greater variations in its manifestations than any other acute infectious disease and may be complicated by conditions affecting practically every organ in the body in no disease is careful nursing conscientious observation painstaking attention and correct interpretation of changes as necessary and valuable as in typhoid fever the nurse that has had extended experience in the care of this disease alone should be well qualified to assume responsibility in the vast majority of medical cases history in the writings of hippocrates galen and others of the ancients it is not possible to distinguish typhoid as an entity typhus and typhoid the plague and perhaps malaria and relapsing fever were apparently grouped together the greatest difficulty seems to have lain in the separation of typhoid and typhus fevers it would be wearisome to give a list of all those quoted in the history of this very disease but somewhat detailed mention must be made of willis who described an epidemic occurring in sixteen forty three which leaves no room for doubt as to its identity with typhoid fever Quote, among the features he describes were headache, nosebleed, delirium, an eruption like flea bites, diarrhea, abdominal distension, intestinal hemorrhage, incontinence of urine and feces, emaciation in prolonged attacks, the long course and the slow recovery without crisis, or the gradual progress to fatal issue. In the history of one patient, he describes what was probably an instance of death from perforation. Quote, Pains and torments cruelly infected his belly, that crying out and moaning night and day, he sent forth his most heavy complaints. His hypochondria and abdomen were tumid, like a tympany, and mightily distended. Unquote. Willis made the observation that the contagion of this disease was slow, but that gradually a household or a community might be infected, and mentions that some of those nursing the patients contracted the disease after a time. He appears to have clearly separated typhoid fever from the plague and typhus fever, and to have appreciated in a remarkable way many of the clinical manifestations as well as the features of epidemics among those following willis that wrote of diseases that were probably typhoid should be mentioned sydenham bagleby hoffman and hall in sixteen ninety nine and again in seventeen twenty eight huxham 
of Plymouth, who, in 1737, had taken notice of the very great difference there is between the putrid, malignant typhus and the slow, nervous typhoid fever. Rydell in Germany wrote in 1748 of typhoid under the name of Darmfiber, intestinal fever, and Roder and Wagler studied an epidemic in Gottingen. 1757 to 1762, which must have been one of typhoid. More modern descriptions of the disease date from 1813 to 1850, and claim France and our own United States as the countries of their origin. In 1813, Petit Anser described enteromesenteric fever, it is worthy of note that in 1824, our countryman, Nathan Smith, published a description of typhoid fever. He did not distinguish between typhoid and typhus, for he evidently saw only one of the two diseases, but his description stands as one of the classics of American medicine and is one of the best early accounts of the disease. In 1829, Louis' great work, appeared in which the name typhoid was first used. At this period, typhoid alone prevailed in Paris, and it was universally believed to be identical with the continued fever of Great Britain, where, in reality, typhoid and typhus coexisted. The intestinal lesion was, at that time, regarded as an accidental occurrence in the course of an ordinary typhoid. Louis' students, returning to their homes in various countries, studied the disease thoroughly. One of them, Gerhardt of Philadelphia, recognized the prevalence at home of the same disease that he had studied with Louis in Paris, and to him, by the publication of his articles in the American Journal of the Medical Sciences in 1835 and 1839, is due the great honor of having first clearly laid down the differences between typhoid and typhus fevers, and of having established a separate individuality for the former. Almost simultaneously, 1833, James Jackson, Jr., of Boston, demonstrated in his father's wards at the Massachusetts General Hospital the identity of the so-called typhus of this country with the typhoid of Louis. In 1838, and 1839, James Jackson, Sr., and Enoch Hale published articles which, together with Gerhardt's contributions, served to make typhoid well known in the United States before it was recognized abroad as a clinical and pathological entity. Shortly thereafter, the studies of Gresinger in Germany and Murchison and Tenor in England did much to spread knowledge of the disease. Two additional facts are of historical importance. The first of these is that clear views on the modes of infection were first published by Budd of Bristol in the London Lancet, 1856 to 1860. He believed that the infective agent was to be found in the stools of the typhoid patient and that the disease never arose spontaneously, but always from a specific source. 
he held that a previous focus was necessary before a neighborhood could be infected and by the study of many epidemics recognized the result of the introduction of infection into a community and noticed that a few straggling cases might later be followed by a larger outbreak he considered that an exceedingly small amount of infective material was able to convey the disease and arguing from this belief he put forward the view that the possibility of infection could be prevented if the stools were thoroughly disinfected his views are essentially correct and bud may be regarded as the first to recognize the leading points in the transmission of the disease the second point to be mentioned is the discovery of the specific germ causing the disease the typhoid bacillus or bacillus typhosis by eber in eighteen eighty quote typhoid fever occurs in the tropics and at far northern and southern latitudes at sea level and in the mountains in the city and in the country and practically everywhere man may go and local conditions do not prevent the dissemination of the disease the bacillus typhosis has about the same limits of latitude and longitude as man himself and no country or race is known to be immune from the disease Schuder, in a study of six hundred and thirty eight epidemics from eighteen seventy to eighteen eighty nine found the infection to be carried by water in seventy one per cent in hamburg from eighteen eighty five to eighteen eighty eight there were fifteen thousand eight hundred and four cases of typhoid fever the water supply at that time was obtained from the elbe not far from where the sewers discharged the neighboring city of wandsbeck with a different water supply was practically free from the disease in paris with a better water supply the death rate from 1882 to 1902 due to typhoid fever was reduced from 142 to 17 per 100,000 population. These few figures show the paramount role played by water in carrying infection. The brief historical summary is interesting as setting forth the early gropings for a clue to this universal scourge and as showing the effect of the breaking forth of the light of knowledge and the gradual comprehension of the value of a strict prophylaxis in limiting the ravages of a disease that even now exacts a yearly toll of over twenty five thousand lives in the united states alone and that is wholly and completely preventable etiology the essential cause of typhoid fever is the typhoid bacillus and that alone this bacillus is motile flagellated possessing hair-like processes grows best in bouillon or milk is very resistant to cold being able to live for three months in ice is usually killed by a temperature of sixty degrees celsius one hundred and forty is always present in the stools and usually in the urine modes of infection one direct by contact with the stools or urine containing 
typhoid bacilli. The hands becoming contaminated, bacilli are easily taken into the mouth, and so into the intestinal canal. Carelessness with bedclothes, bedpans, urinals, or any articles or utensils coming in contact with the excreta of the patient may very easily cause attendants to acquire the disease. 2. Water. This is by far the most common source of all typhoid epidemics. If the water supply of a community is infected, practically everyone, not immune to the disease, is taken ill. Carelessness in disinfection and disposal of excreta, or an inadequately protected watershed, paved the way for an infected water supply. The accompanying diagram illustrates schematically how a water supply may become infected. While the diagram shows how the water supply to a whole town may become infected, there are many other ways in which water may indirectly prove to be the channel of infection. Some of these will be briefly mentioned. 3. Food A. Milk Often contaminated through infected water used to wash the cans or through the infected fingers of the milkman in whose home a case of typhoid fever exists. Frequently, it has been found that most cases of typhoid developing in a town are on the route of one particular milk wagon. B. Shellfish may carry infection either by having lived in contaminated water or by having been shipped in water infected with typhoid bacilli. C. Vegetables may carry infection by being washed in contaminated water. 4. Flies These pests are a great source of the communicability of typhoid fever. They alight on the bacillus-laden typhoid stool and fly away, carrying typhoid bacilli on their feet. To deposit them on any article of food they may choose for a resting place, or any glass of water upon which they may settle. The water or the food upon being taken internally infects the individual with typhoid fever. 5. Clothing Especially all articles in contact with typhoid patients, such as nightgowns, towels, sheets, pillowcases, blankets, handkerchiefs, etc., which, unless carefully disinfected, are fruitful sources for the spread of the disease as they easily become contaminated through contact with stools or urine. Pathology. The discussion of this subject will be limited to a consideration of the intestines and spleen, as it is in these two organs that the most characteristic changes are found. Intestines. These are often distended, and the peritoneum over the bowel may show many small hemorrhagic areas. Ulcers are to be found in the walls of the lower part of the jejunum and ileum, the long axis of the ulcers being parallel with the long axis of the bowel. A rather detailed consideration of the intestinal ulceration is necessary in order that the mechanism of two of the most important complications of typhoid fever, perforation and hemorrhage, 
may be clearly understood. There are four stages in the evolution of the typhoid ulcer in the intestinal wall. 1. Hyperemia and hypoplasia. 2. Necrosis and sloughing. 3. Ulceration. 4. Cicatrization. 1. Hyperemia and hypoplasia. This condition is characterized by an intense congestion and by an increase in the cells, especially the lymphoid cells, in the bowel wall, which occurs in the lower part of the jejunum and in the ileum, sometimes even extending into the large intestine. Payer's patches, which are collections of lymphoid cells normally existing in the bowel wall, become greatly enlarged. 2. Necrosis and slowing. A death of tissue in the bowel over the affected areas, especially the pears, patches, or plaques, now occurs. This is due to three factors. 1. Diminished blood supply to the involved area due to pressure on the blood vessels running in the bowel wall. 2. The formation in these vessels of clots known as thrombi, which plug the vessels completely. 3. The specific poisoning action of the toxins of the typhoid bacillus. Necrosis may be superficial or deep. 3. Ulceration. When necrosis is complete, the slough begins to separate from its base and an ulcer results. The separation begins at the edges and extends inward until the entire slough is cast off. Perforation occurs most frequently at the time of the separation of the slough. Several neighboring ulcers may unite, forming one huge ulcerated area. 4. Cicatrization This is the stage of repair and recovery. It begins as a thin film of granulation tissue covering the base of the ulcer and gradually extends until all signs of damage have disappeared. After the reparative process is complete, the area is usually deeper than the surrounding tissue and lighter in color. The various stages in ulcer formation and repair are to be found in the bowel at one and the same time. Thus, at the height of the disease, an ulcer in the stage of repair may be near one that has just reached the stage of necrosis and slowing. Spleen This organ is always swollen, usually to three times its normal size, due to a tremendous increase in the lymphoid tissue, of which it is so largely composed. Symptoms The incubation period in typhoid fever is very variable, 3 to 23 days. Roughly speaking, about two weeks. Onset. This is gradual, the patient feeling below par for a week or ten days, suffering from headache, loss of appetite, lassitude, increasing weakness, and general malaise. Nosebleed often occurs. Course. The course of typhoid fever is usually described by weeks. First week. The patient, feeling badly, finally takes to his bed. The temperature rises daily in a step-like manner, see chart, beginning 
with a maximum of 100 degrees, and at the end of the week reaching from 102 to 104 degrees. The face is flushed, the eyes bright, there is considerable headache and complete loss of appetite. The tongue is coated with a white fur and frequently clean at the edges. The abdomen is moderately distended and abdominal gurglings are frequent. There is some mental slowness. The pulse is full and bounding and is slow as compared with the height of the temperature running usually between 80 and 90 to the minute. Cough with some mucoid expectoration is common. The bowels are usually constipated, though often there is a simulated diarrhea due to the giving of purgatives. This must not be confounded with typhoidal diarrhea to be mentioned later. At the end of the week, rose spots, the eruption of typhoid fever, appear either on the abdomen, chest, or back. They may be few in number or very abundant. They are small pinkish spots, slightly raised above the surface of the skin, disappearing at once on slight pressure, but reappearing instantly the pressure is released. The spleen is usually enlarged. Second week. During this period of the disease, the symptoms mentioned in the preceding paragraph with the exception of headache, which usually disappears, become more pronounced, and some new ones make their appearance. The temperature on the whole is higher, running between 102 and 105 degrees, and there are fewer remissions. The abdomen may be more distended, and in severe cases diarrhea may set in. The mental condition is distinctly more dull than in the first week the patient lying quietly, usually being able to answer questions, but paying very little attention to what goes on. Especially do patients lose the idea of time, and hence will frequently assert that no food has been given for ten or twelve hours, when, as a matter of fact, such is not the case. The pulse becomes more rapid, ninety to a hundred and ten, and is often dichrotic complications may set in. Third week. In mild attacks, the patient's condition begins to improve. See, fourth week. In severe cases, the disease is now at its height. The temperature runs steadily high, 103 to 105 degrees. The abdomen is greatly distended. The tongue is brown and cracked. Swords appear on the lips. The mental condition is profoundly affected, some patients being wildly delirious, others lying in a stupor. The condition known as coma vigil may be present, the patient lying with eyes wide open, staring, and wholly unconscious. They may be picking at the bedclothes. All these symptoms denote intense toxemia, and, taken together, are often referred to as the typhoid state. Emaciation is extreme. The pulse is rapid, 120 or more, weak and thready. There often is diarrhea and incontinence of urine and feces. Complications, especially perforation and hemorrhage, are particularly frequent at this time. Fourth week. If the patient is to survive, improvement usually shows itself. 
Among the first signs are greater remissions in the temperature, these occurring usually in the morning hours, and betterment in the mental condition, which denotes a lessening of the toxemia. At times, the temperature may begin to drop, but the mental condition fails to clear up. This is a bad sign, denoting intense systemic poisoning. The diarrhea lessens, as does the abdominal distension. The pulse becomes slower and stronger. The dirty, foul tongue clears up, and all symptoms abate. By the end of this week, convalescence is underway. In the case of average severity, the patient will be in bed about six weeks. Mild cases may be up and about in a little over a month, while severe cases may be confined to bed for three months and more. The urine. The urine in typhoid fever presents no characteristic features other than those usually present in any acute febrile disease, save that the diazole reaction of Ehrlich is usually present. During the course of typhoid, a very large amount of urine is frequently passed due to the large amount of water forced upon the patient. The blood. The blood in typhoid fever also presents no notable changes. The most important fact in connection with the blood is that the leukocytes are not increased in number. Typhoid being one of two common infectious diseases characterized by no increase in those cells. The other disease is tuberculosis. In serious cases, there is, of course, a moderate degree of anemia. A word must be said concerning the vital reaction of the blood. This reaction depends upon the presence in the blood serum of substances known as agglutinins, see chapter on immunity, which have the power to cause microorganisms to lose their power of motion, if it exists, and of causing them to agglutinate or clump. In a patient with typhoid fever, specific typhoid agglutinins are present, which will cause typhoid bacilli, and no others, to clump and to become motionless. If, for instance, 40 drops of a broth culture of typhoid bacilli are mixed with one drop of the patient's blood serum, and within an hour the bacilli are seen under the microscope to lose their motility and to clump, the vital reaction is said to be positive and a dilution of 1 to 40. If 100 drops of culture are mixed with one drop of serum and the reaction is present, it is said to be positive in a dilution of 1 to 100, etc. The vital reaction is an extremely important diagnostic point in typhoid fever. It is almost never present until the end of the first week sometimes not until the end of the second week, almost always by the third week. Hence, it is of no value at the very beginning of the disease. If the patient has been inoculated with anti-typhoid vaccine within three years, the reaction loses its value, as it will almost invariably be positive whether the patient is suffering from typhoid fever or not. The Stools if the stools are not loose, there is nothing about them that is characteristic. If they are loose, 
they are generally known as pea soup stools they are thin of a brownish color and have a peculiar characteristic odor on standing they separate into an upper fluid layer and a lower more solid layer constipation is the rule in typhoid and constipated patients seem to do better the early diarrhea is usually due to the giving of purgatives before the diagnosis has been made the late or typhoidal diarrhea is to be classed as a complication complications all the complications of typhoid fever cannot be dealt with here for to do so would require almost a separate volume those to be mentioned include the most frequent and important ones and those with which the nurse will most often be called upon to deal hemorrhage intestinal hemorrhage is caused by the erosion or eating away of the wall of one of the blood vessels in the bowel by the ulcerative process going on in the intestine hemorrhage occurs in about seven percent of all cases of typhoid fever the amount of blood lost may vary from a few cubic centimeters to a quart depending upon the size of the injured vessel when hemorrhage is large it is a serious complication hemorrhages may occur singly or there may be many in rapid succession as a rule several small hemorrhages prove more serious than one moderately large one for the amount of blood lost is greater and there is less time for recuperation hemorrhages usually occur at the end of the second week and during the third week of the disease but may occur at any time from the onset to convalescence the nurse being with the patient continuously is the one that far more than the physician is present at the moment the hemorrhage occurs and should train her powers of observation in order to suspect the presence of hemorrhage at the earliest possible moment symptoms a small hemorrhage a couple of ounces or so as a rule gives no symptoms and is not even suspected until the blood is passed in the stool with a larger hemorrhage there may or may not be abdominal pain at the time of bleeding if the hemorrhage is copious there is usually a sudden fall in temperature a sense of weakness and in marked cases pallor with a cold sweat restlessness and air hunger the patient complaining of a stifling sensation and restlessly tossing the head from side to side on the pillow there is usually a change in the pulse at the time of bleeding it becomes faster and has a peculiar bounding feel difficult to describe but easy to recognize when once its significance has been appreciated the main thing for the nurse to note is the change not alone in the pulse but in the patient's general condition the above symptoms permit only the suspicion of hemorrhage proof comes when the blood is passed from the bowel usually the blood is dark and clotted though if the hemorrhage is profuse and low down in the bowel the blood pass may be a brighter red it is only by constant watchfulness that the nurse will be able to detect the early signs that are suggestive of hemorrhage but by their prompt detection and interpretation 
and by carrying out at once the provisional orders left by the physician, she will do much towards aiding her patient in his fight for life. Perforation Perforation is the most serious and most dreaded of all the complications of typhoid fever. It is brought about by the eating away, through deep ulceration, of the peritoneum covering the bowel. Two minutes after the perforation has occurred, the infectious bowel contents are flowing freely into the peritoneal cavity, setting up an acute general spreading, septic peritonitis. In the absence of prompt diagnosis and speedy surgical interference, death is inevitable. No nurse is ever required or desired to make a diagnosis of perforation, but she must be on the alert for those symptoms suggestive of the condition, in order that she may at once summon the physician. If she is in doubt, she should always call the doctor. It is better to send for him a dozen times on false alarms than to hesitate and delay when the real danger is present, for in cases of perforation, minutes count. Perforation occurs in 2% to 3% of all cases, and usually during the third week, though, as in the cases of hemorrhage, it must never be forgotten that it may occur at any time. Symptoms By far the most important single symptom of perforation is sudden, severe, paroxysmal abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, sweating, and signs of collapse may occur. Any sudden and obscure change in the patient's condition is suggestive. After perforation, the pulse tension rises, the opposite from hemorrhage, and eventually the wiry pulse of peritonitis is to be felt. From the standpoint of the nurse, pain is by far the most important symptom. The leukocytes are increased in number with the development of peritonitis, which is an important aid to the physician in making the diagnosis, as in uncomplicated typhoid there is no leukocytosis. If surgical intervention is not resorted to, the symptoms of general peritonitis will manifest themselves. Thrombosis. This complication frequently occurs, usually in the femoral or iliac vein. When in the femoral vein there is pain down the leg, usually some swelling, edema, and cyanosis, and the vein may be felt as a hard, tender cord. When thrombosis occurs in the iliac vein, the pain is abdominal, and owing to its severity may suggest perforation. End of chapter 21 Part A